It is a good thing to praise the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord all the day long. Amen? You guys doing? <laughs> God is good. From the Garden of Eden to the Israelites following the cloud of glory by day and the pillar of fire by night to the tabernacle of Moses, God's manifest presence in the Ark of the Covenant contained in the Holy of Holies to the priest carrying his ark across the Jordan rivers into the Canaan, to, to the tabernacle of David with a glorious procession of unceasing day and night worship, to the kabod weight of glory filling Solomon's temple, to him that is greater than the temple, from the law of the prophets to the word made flesh, the great commission, Jesus' ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecies, which commences the last day's church. From 50 days from Passover to Pentecost, the divine stage was set. This is the story of the Bible. Before the cross, we're looking for our Messiah. We're looking for Jesus. But after the resurrection, after the cross, the Messiah comes looking for us. He is the promise of the Father, the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, the fire by which we would be baptized, as John the Baptist proclaimed. If you would, turn your Bibles to Mark 16, and we're going to look at that, and then you can, um, we're going to also look at Acts 2. But today's Pentecost, and so we're going to be looking at the story of Pentecost and something that we've talked about before, but it's just appropriate. Pentecost is the Charismatics Easter. <laughs> That's a bad joke. <clears throat> um, but anyway... Okay, we get excited about Pentecost, in other, is, is what I mean. Okay, because we're always talking about it all year long. <laughs> all right, so um, in Mark 16, we have the resurrection, and we're not going to really look at that, but we are going to look at just briefly the Great Commission, and we've taught on this before, but this is hugely important. In Mark's uh, gospel, in the Great Commission, we start in verse 14 of Mark 16, it says, Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples as they were reclining at the table and he called them to account for their unbelief in the hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he rose from the dead. He said to them, go into all the earth and preach the gospel to all creation. He that believes in me and has been baptized will be saved from the penalty of God's wrath and judgment. But he who has not believed will be condemned. These signs will accompany those that have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if, any, if they drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. So then, when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord was working with them, confirming the word by signs that followed. Okay, one thing was clear and evident in the Great Commission is that the coming birth of the church, the body of Christ, would not be a natural, merely a building or an organization or a natural institution, but it would be a community of people that were marked by supernatural signs. And these are signs that he gave us. If we look at this, we see casting out demons, speaking in tongues, picking up serpents, divine protection, deliverance, laying hands on the sick and they will recover. 
we see that each one of these signs is a supernatural sign. Each one of these evidences only come by being aided with power. In other words, there's something that you and I can never produce in our own strength or power. There's something you and I, in, in all of our, no matter how much we give to serve the Lord, we can never in our own power produce any of these signs. We are called to not produce just a good community that serves, just um, a place that people come and just receive, you know, people come and they receive Jesus, but we're called to display for them the gospel with the power of God and accompanying signs. We're called to display to the world a supernatural gospel. Um, but the, the issue is that you and I can't, there's nothing in us able to produce these signs. This great commission, it came with a great condition, and that is they had to receive power in order to demonstrate and produce the fruit that Jesus required of them. So Jesus requires you and I, you and I to do what we can never, what is absolutely impossible. He is re Jesus requires us to produce the impossible, right? Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, all of these things, speak in new tongues. But there was a great con condition, and that is do not leave Jerusalem until you receive power. Because to become what I've called you to be, displaying evidential signs in the marks of the New Testament church, you must receive, be clothed in power. There is something, there is a presence that you have to be touched with. That will be the unction that works within you to produce the marks that I'm requiring of you. Pentecost is what ignites the Great Commission. When the day of Pentecost fully came, it was the great commission that was in that moment fully realized. Pentecost fire releases great commission boldness. Jesus gives his disciples the great commission to go, but we know this, the great commission of going comes, came with the great condition of waiting. Pentecost was coming. They were called to wait. According to the Jewish law, high the high priest was to take two loaves of freshly baked wheat bread made from the harvest and offer them before the Lord. Every adult Jewish man would come from wherever they were living across the Jewish dispersion and personally be in attendance during the celebration. Both Hebrew Jews, Jews that were native to the Holy Land, and Hellenistic Jews, those that lived outside of the Holy Land, would gather. Pentecost occurs 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and 10 days after his ascension into heaven. The name of the day itself is derived from the word Pentecost, meaning fifth, 50, 50th. Mary and the apostle, apostles were told in Acts 1 they prayed continuously for 10 days after the ascension, ascension of Jesus leading up to Pentecost. Pentecost is also known as Shavuot, or the festival of weeks, referring to the seven weeks since Passover. In the Shavuot, it commemorates Mount Sinai when the Lord revealed the law to Moses on the mountain. Mount Sinai was the first Pentecost. They received the law, and God's presence was displayed, accompanied by fire, smoke, and the sound of thunder in Exodus 19. But here in Acts 2, on Pentecost, his presence came like the sound of a mighty wind, tongues of fire, and the gift of different languages. On Pentecost, the last day's church was birthed in the presence and in the power of God. The, 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 um, let me drink some water. 
the disciples took instruction to tarry. They were obedient to the Lord. Okay, I'm going to give you four keys. There's an order to Pentecost, and I'm going to give you the five, five keys here. The disciples, Jesus gives them the commission, but he tells them to wait. They were obedient to the Lord. Obedience, prayer, waiting, and unity. These are four things that we see right before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They took the instructions to be obedient to God's word to wait. They agonized in prayer. They tarried in Jerusalem, and they were all in one place in one accord. Don't underestimate the power of praying in one accord. God is raising up a church, a body that can shift the atmosphere of a city and contest spiritual forces with the staying power, but it only comes when we unite in the place of prayer. The order of Pentecost, obedience, prayer, waiting, and unity. What started in prayer became a sound in the heavenlies. If you, if you turn to Acts 2, you guys know the story, but Acts 2 When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This is the amplified uh, translation. A su- suddenly, a sound came from heaven like a rushing, violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues resembling fire, which were being distributed among them. And they rested on each one of them as each person received the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled, that is, def- diffused throughout their being with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues different languages as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out clearly and appropriately in Exodus uh, okay if you want turn your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 2 and in in Exodus 19 6 and Isaiah 61 6 we see it has been long prophesied that God would raise up a kingdom of priests, those that would minister to the Lord face to face. First Peter chapter two. Verse 4, come to him, the risen Lord, as to a, a living stone which men rejected and threw away, but which is choice and precious in the sight of God. You believers, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy and dedicated priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a chosen stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will never be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe in him as God's only son, the source of salvation. But, the, but for those who disbelieve, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a, stumble, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they disobey the word of God, and to this they who reject him as Savior were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a consecrated nation, a special people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies, wonderful deeds, virtues, and perfections of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
It has been long prophesied that God would raise up a house, a kingdom of priests for himself. It's important to understand that the church is made up of people that are living stones. We are being built together into the house of God in order to house a spiritual priesthood to him. Um, We see references to this all throughout the Bible in two depictions that illustrate the New Testament church, and I'm going to give you two, is number one, the tabernacle of David. One depiction of the house of God and the priests in the tabernacle of David ministered to the Lord 24-7 in worship and in intercession. We see this uh, reference to Amos 9 and that God would restore and, and build rebuild the tabernacle of David and in Acts 15 that prophecy is re uh, reproclaimed um, and referenced in Acts 15 but the second reference that we get to the house of God is in Genesis chapter 28 this is a prophetic depiction of the New Testament church Um, if you if you want and I know I'm jumping around a lot but if you can turn to Genesis uh, chapter 28 I'm just going to read a couple verses Now, Jacob, uh, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Now, Jacob left Beersheba never to see his mother again and traveled to, toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed overnight there because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down there to sleep. He dreamed that there was a ladder placed on the earth and the top of it reached toward heaven. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above and around him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, father and God of Isaac. I will give to you and your descendants the land of promise on which you are lying. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east. To the north and the south, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you and your descendants. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this promised land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promise. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, without any doubt, the Lord is in this place. Another translation said, how awesome is this place. Oh, verse 17, he was afraid and said, how fearful and awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway of heaven. Isn't that an awesome statement? Um, In Jacob's encounter, we don't have a building, we don't have a group of believers, but we have a man and a dream and a God encounter. And this carries a power of the first mention of the subject of the house of God in Scripture, and it lays for us a foundation of understanding that where God dwells, that is his house. And Jacob, he called that place, this surely, how fearful and awesome is this place, this, must, this is the house of God. God dwells here. The house of God, the gateway of heaven. We understand a gate as being on the edge or a transition between two realities. Um... When you pull up in the, in the uh, driveway in the parking lot, there's a gate. Sometimes the gate's open, sometimes it's closed. But when you pass through that gate, you enter into our private parking, RSVP, uh, uh, VIP, sorry. <laughs> Jesus. <clears throat> Woo! So there's a gateway. That's, uh, some people have gateways into their, into their driveway that leads into their home. Okay. When you pass through that gate, you're now entering in somebody's property in their house. A gate stands on the edge of two realities. In Ephesians 1.21, man, I got to, okay, you want to turn your Bibles there? You can. I didn't write all these down. I normally have them all written down. I want to hear the rustling of the pages. 
Come on. I don't hear much. Okay, everyone's got their iPhones. So, all right, 121, it says, Far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, every name that is named above every title can be conferred, not only in this age and world, but also in the one to come. And look at Ephesians 2, 6. He raised us up together with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Everyone say seated because we are in Christ Jesus. Okay, where's that place at? It's seated above all rule and authority, power, dominion, above every title. It's in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. When he ascended, he, he, we, he ascended as our representative in heaven, but he left us here on earth so that there might be a bridge between two realities, heaven on earth. That's why you're, again, that's why you're still here when you got saved. He didn't take you up and rapture you in a moment to go and be with him. He actually left you here, but he placed your spirit with him in Christ Jesus so that you might be an ambassador of heaven on earth, a representative. You are, um, when we come to, okay, so when we come, I'm laying a foundation, but when we come to Pentecost, we gain this perception of God's ways. That is, the believers in the upper room, what happened? They became the house of God. God fell. His manifest presence fell. Living stones, the gate of heaven, a transition between two worlds. In Ephesians 2, 21, I'm going to read this again. In him, the whole building is fitted together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together. Everyone say together. A dwelling place for God in his spirit. Together. Look at the person next to you. That is part of the house of God. We are being built as joints come together, supplying strength to one another. The people around you, we collectively, we are making up his temple. The temple is not in this building. It's not in the floor or the walls. We're actually the temple of God. It is actually the body of Christ in, in coming together. And that's why do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Because as you gather, as two or three gather, there I am with them. Right? It's his ecclesia. So in Acts 2, what we're witnessing is what they missed at Sinai. Do you remember in Sinai in Acts 19, uh, 20 and 21, we can read this account. But he calls Israel up to meet with him. And Israel, they hear the thunder and they said, God must be mad. I'm paraphrasing. But they stepped away. And it, it tells us in Acts, sorry, not, in, in the book of Exodus, that God desired to make them a spiritual priesthood. Essentially, in Acts 19, we read, they send Moses up to the mountain. Moses, go see what God wants and come back and deliver his word. And they instituted a priest, priesthood ministry where a priest would mediate between God and between man. And so at Sinai, we actually missed what God was calling, into, uh, calling us into in that he, wanted a, he always wanted a nation of priests, people that would relate to him face to face rather than through a man. In Acts 2, we, uh, God poured out what we missed at Sinai, and God beckoned, where God beckoned them to come into, up into the mountain. It's a manifestation of the heart of God, of a heavenly reality coming upon his people, within his people, and through his people. And you and I, in that moment, we became in Christ, washed, justified, sanctified in the blood of Jesus. You and I became a nation of priests. So if you and I are a nation of priests, we are mediators, right? If, if you and I are relating to the Father face to face, and a mediator 
is someone that stands in between God and people, then who are the people that we're mediating between? If we're, we, all of us have access through a new and living way to, to the throne room. Let us therefore come into his throne room with boldness because of his grace. We're mediating between the Father and a lost world. You and I all come to him as priests. Does that make sense? So no longer is it God, a priest, and a man. It's all of us are priests, and now we are becoming a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling a lost world to the Father, putting a face on God, putting a face on the Father. This is who he is. This is what he wants to say to you. This is his love. This is the cross. And you and I are actually called to be an extension as a nation of priests to a world that is lost. Turn um, Hebrews 1. Are you guys following me? Okay, thank you, Jesus. All right. Okay, Hebrews 1. Man, this... Okay, so there's, there's a lot in here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to read all of it, but... Um, okay, I'll just jump in here. God, having spoke to us, to the fathers long ago, in the voices and writings of the prophets, in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of truth, and in many ways, has in these last days spoken with finality to us in the person of the one who is by his character and nature his son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, through him, through whom also he created the universe, that is, the universe's space-time matter. The Son is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence. Okay, I just want you to look at this verse too. Has in these last days, from the moment the Holy Spirit was poured out, it commenced the last day's church in these last days, spoken to us through the Son. Okay, uh, jump down, if you would, um, to verse 5. For which, to which of the angels did the Father ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you? And again, did he ever say to the angels, I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me? And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and all the angels of God are to worship him. In verse 7. And concerning the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministering servants flames of fire. But about the son, uh, the father says, okay, so he makes his angels winds, his ministering servants of flame of fire. Jump down to verse 14. Are not all the angels, Okay, verse 13. But to which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay, later, go back and read the whole chapter. Um, but in Acts 2, in, in Hebrews 1, 7 and 1, 14, we're getting this um, picture of angels that are being sent as, as, as wind and as fire. Um, in Acts 2, likely it appears a great number of angels were present on Pentecost as they had an effect on how the day was described. Wind and fire. Um, the word for noise can be translated as a roar. What we see here is heaven opening over the earth and coming in manifest power 
and you can imagine an army of angels sweeping across 120 believers, making a sound in the city that summons people into, the de- into their destiny. Heaven is being opened, and the conduit is becoming man. Uh, and what we see in verse, if you will, uh, in Acts 2, can jump back. I'm jumping everywhere, but I'm going to tie it all together. In Acts uh, 2, verse back in verse 5, picking up where we were. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout and God-fearing men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound was heard, a great, cow- a great crowd gathered. They were bewildered because each one was hearing those in the upper room speaking in his own language. They were completely astonished, saying, Look, are not all these men who speak in Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and the visitors for Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them speaking in our native tongue about the mighty works of God. Okay, the roar of heaven that was released over a city summoned a crowd, and it brought a convergence of nations and cultures under heaven. And Pentecost, to, uh, let's keep reading. They were beside themselves with amazement, and they said, what could this possibly mean? But others were laughing and joking, ridiculing them, saying, they are full of sweet wine, and they are drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Okay. So, what happened is at Pentecost is that a divine s- stage was set for the proclamation of the gospel to be released. Um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The timid fishermen who denied Jesus three times under the Holy Spirit's fire becomes a roaring lion. It becomes a roaring flame. And he establishes truth in an age of error. He is establishing truth in the gospel in the revelation of Christ. It's Peter. Peter, the rock on which Christ would build his church. Jesus asked his disciples, who do, you, who do men say that I am? Some, some of them answered, some say Elijah, some say John. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? The revelation of Christ, each one of us must answer that question. That's the most important question of our life, is who do we say that he is? Peter, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You got that through revelation. And he says, and on this I will build my church, on this rock. It was the rock of the authority of the person of Christ, the anointed one, the rock of revelation. In Peter, we see the rock of revelation. We see the revelation of grace. Peter was the zealous fisherman. Who, denied, who said, Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll disown everything. I, he left his nets behind and he followed the Lord. And he said, Lord, I will never disown you. And, he, and, and Peter, surely it came as Jesus prophesied. He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus, as we see after his resurrection, he's walking with Peter and he restores him three times. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. 
He, and he is reestablishing his devotion. Jesus is reestablishing Peter's devotion to himself by grace. And in that love, feed my sheep. As we love the Lord first, and we reorient our pri- priorities to relationship and intimacy to him, the message, and the, the, the message by which we feed will always remain pure. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Our ministry is first to God. Anytime that we place man above God, the message becomes polluted, perverted. Our message is first to to Christ himself. Do you love me? By grace, he restored him. Peter, the revelation of grace, the revelation of Christ. Peter, the revelation of the fire of God, and he preaches the first gospel. Peter establishes truth, and he establishes the battleground for truth. The mantle, the tongues that came down like flames of fire was a mantle that came upon the church, and it was a mantle to speak, and it unleashed bold, a bold spirit. You and I, this nation, the body of Christ in this nation, it needs a fresh outpouring of fire so that we might contest and take down with divine weapons spiritual strongholds that have set themselves up against God. The mantle that's coming upon us, the fire, is not just for goosebumps and giggles and rolling on the floor and being drunk in the Holy Spirit. It is actually to contest spiritual darkness and to speak and open up our mouth. When God's fire comes upon you, it's to take a radical stand for the truth against Satan's agenda. We see a timid fisherman that denied Jesus three times now built upon not his own strength, not his own works, upon the revelation of the grace of God. Peter, do you love me? No longer was his zeal based upon his own, his own, uh, his own effort, his own love. It was based upon the revelation that Christ was now restoring him. It was based upon the way that the Lord loved Peter. And out of that place, Peter, do you love me? I am restoring you. On this rock, I will build my church. The zealous Peter was not yet ready to, to uh, take that mantle because he had to receive the revelation, the cornerstone of the grace of God that had to come upon him. Peter, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, preaches, and he, has, he preaches the first gospel. The fire of God will come upon you to release that which God has given you. It's coming upon you to open your mouth to speak his truth in an uncompromised way. The body of Christ needs a fresh Pentecost so that we can begin to move out of a compromised gospel, out of progressive Christianity, and into the uncompromised church that is healing the world. This was a a divine stage set for the proclamation of truth. Old men, young men, men servants, and maidservants, we see is Joel's prophecies. On this, on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, will come the spirit of prophecy, the first fruit. The spirit of prophecy. Your young men, they will, they will dream dreams. Your old men, your young men will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. What we're talking about is, is generational and it's global. And the fire of God comes and it breaks down the dividing walls and the barricades and the divisions. And it breaks through nationalities, every nation, tribe, tongue. It breaks through male and female. It breaks through age. And it even breaks through social class. As we see on your mid-servants, on your maidservants, even upon the slaves, I will pour out my spirit. And he's, he is eliminating every barricade and every class of division because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
is a release of unity through diversity. Um, what we're talking about is it's generational, it's global. You need the fire of God in your life. But more than you need the fire of God, we need you to have the fire of God. The person next to you needs you to have the fire of God. Because the fire that comes upon us um, is not for you. It is for you, but it's ultimately it's not for you. It's, again, it's generational and it's global. It's to create a momentum through you. It's a supernatural uh, phenomenon that comes upon us to create a momentum and unction that is through us. But we see, um, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but in Peter's sermon, if you will, um, they say, what does this essentially, what, whatever could this mean? Um, this is important because in a move of God, a follow-up to the move of God is that it must be met with the marriage of the Spirit and the Word. Peter gives his first sermon. Are you guys okay? You guys ready for lunch? <laughs> All right, you guys look tired. Some of you are fasting, I know. <laughs> All right, <laughs> come on. Woo! All right, Peter's first gospel. Again, I've got a lot of, like, 10 pages of notes. I'm just going to hit through this because I want to close on something. Uh, but it's the message of his death, and you can read through this. It's the message message of Christ's death, his resurrection. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy that a descendant of David would sit upon his throne to establish a kingdom. And it's the pronouncement of his lordship. These are the four, one, two, these are the, excuse me, the four elements of Peter's first gospel. Okay, turn to verse, uh, jump forward to verse 37. Um, and again, this is, I, I just skipped through, but um, in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart with remorse and anxiety. Woo! That's a good message. Um, and, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? And Peter, he said to them, repent, change your old ways of thinking, turn from your sinful ways, accept and follow Jesus as the Messiah, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the forgiveness, because of, the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, uh, Peter, uh, boldly and unapologetically, he calls for repentance from sin, and we see 3,000 souls are added in a day. In the next 10, uh, sorry, in the next five verses, I'm just going to read into this. And Peter said to them, yeah, okay, verse 39, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. And Peter solemnly testified and continued to admonish and urge them with many words, saying, be saved from this crooked and unjust generation. So then those that accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. Okay, in the next five verses, what we get is the um, ten foundation stones, what I'm going to call ten foundation stones of the New Testament church and every subsequent move of God. And we're going to, I'm going to run through these and we're going to close. As I was studying these verses in verse 42 to verse 7, I found ten pieces, elements, foundation stones of the New Testament church. Verse 42, they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles, 
and to fellowship and to eating meals together and, prayer, and to prayers. A sense of awe was felt by everyone and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those that believed in Jesus were together and had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing the proceeds with all the other believers as anyone had need. Day after day, they met in the temple, continuing with one mind, breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually, having favor with all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those that were being saved. Okay, the first uh, foundation stone is the Apostles' Doctrine. This is the foundational teachings of Jesus Christ and the preaching and the teaching of his word. Um, number two, we have the, they, were, they gave themselves continually, faithfully, devoting to the instruction of the Apostles. That which was given to those that were eyewitnesses to Jesus. The original 12 disciples, all of them walked with the Lord. And thus they had carried the authority to continue to speak and preach that which they had seen and heard, which is we see in Acts 1. And so they had special authority in that time to carry on. And they, the, those that were added, they committed themselves to the apostles' doctrine as those that had walked with Jesus carried authority above theirs as eyewitnesses to Christ. Um, number two is the fellowship and the breaking of bread. So our relationships, um, we see the fire of God coming. We see the, the proclamation of the gospel. We see repentance. We see souls added. But we see that the relationships were steward, that the fire of God was stewarded in relationship and fellowship. How we, how we steward our relationships is how we steward the fire of God that abides. And we understand that in the ancient world, sharing a meal in someone's home, it was a sign of covenant relationship. As believers met together, they were in effect, they were saying, we're not just committed to the Lord, we're committed to one another. And eating together is a kingdom, Matt says this, eating together is a kingdom occasion. It's a kingdom event. Eating together, it signifies they were, they were a spiritual family. Fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, they were committed to one another. We're sharing our lives. We are a family. Prayer, number three, prayer. This is the hallmark of the first century church. It was fervency in prayer. The first century church regular, regularly practiced prayer and fasting. This kind of fasting prayer is what opens up the realm of impossibilities, breaks have the yokes of oppression, strongholds, and it shifts the spiritual realm. Number four, the fear of the Lord and wonders and signs. It was the apostles that were known as those that had turned the world upside down. In Acts 17, the city that they walked into, it trembled at their presence. How many cities uh, are trembling today because the body of Christ is in it? There's a trembling that takes place in the quaking and a shaking in a city when an apostolic community that knows who they are, that is baptized in the fire of God, there's a shaking that takes place in a city when an apostolic community is raised up. An apostolic community is a cutting-edge community. It's confrontational 
It's earth-shaking. And it's the Church of Acts was a church that walks in uncompromised authority and power, and the fear of the Lord was with them. We know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A sense of reverence and awe comes over the believers in light of the power that's being demonstrated. God is not a God of fear, but he is a God to be feared. Um, okay, number, number five is unity. Uh, the, church was, the church was transformed from a band of disciples into the family of God. They displayed radical unity in their love and commitment toward one another. They were founded upon Jesus' teachings, great commission. And in number six, we see that overflowed into generosity and care for one another. Radical generosity, radical care. A testimony of generosity and care for one another was a fruit of revival hitting this community in full force. Breaking, like Josiah was praying earlier, breaking the spirit of poverty, breaking lack. And in Acts 4.34, it tells us that there was no need among them. One of the fruits of revival is that there was no need, there was no lack. They gave everything they had, all their possessions, and yet no need was among them. They provided for one another. Radical generosity. The Lord told us, try him in, in this area. See if he will not open heavens and pour out a blessing that would overtake us in Malachi 3.10. Okay, number seven. Gladness. <laughs> I did count them. I didn't write the numbers. Um, gladness or the joy of the Lord. They were met with gladness, and in another translation, in the NKJV says, in simplicity of heart. You can imagine that in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, their priorities and their lives were reoriented around heavenly purpose, and they shared the joy of the Lord and the simplicity of heart. Um, as we come into the Holy Spirit, the as we come into, um, come together and worship God, we give ourselves to him. It's important that we begin to let go of the things of this world, the cares of this life, and we begin to reorient our lives with eternal destiny in mind. I was reading something. Um, um, actually, I saw this on Bryce's. Where's Bryce? I saw this on his refrigerator at men's night, but it's Randy, Randy Alcorn. And there's this, uh, he wrote something called The Treasure Principle. Anyways, one of the things he describes is um, that our lives are like, a, are, are like a line. And he says that this life is the dot, and eternity is the line that extends from that dot. It's the imprint. We, get, we, get, we have one life, and it's, we make an imprint with that dot, but the rest of eternity derives itself from that one line, from that one dot. Eternity extends from the imprint that we make in this life. This is the simplicity of heart, is that we let go of this world and the things that are worthless and don't matter, and we begin to engage with that which truly matters, that which is eternal. Okay, number eight, <coughs> worship. We see all throughout Acts, the believers customarily went to the temple to worship and praise God for sending the Messiah. Number nine is God's favor. Um. The church is, Graham Cook says, the church is the only nonprofit organization that exen exists for the benefit of its non-members. 
um, they shared in the favor with all people. To become effective, you and I, we need the light of his face, the favor of God, the honey of heaven. It comes upon us as we seek first his kingdom. And finally, number 10 is that there was an evangelism explosion. In Acts 16, we read about the church of Antioch. Antioch is where they were first called Christians. And it's there that God established a mission space. Antioch was located at a chief trade intersection between Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, and Mesopotamia, strategic for the spread of Christianity. What we see is that as the Spirit came out, a well was opened, and as a well of revival opens, a mission base is established. Cultural barricades are crossed. Truth is rescued, and, the, and cities are shaken. Okay, I'm going to close here, but what I'm talking to you today about is preparing for the next wave of God in the earth. If, we do, if we'll do what he did, he'll come like he came. And the fire fell, and it would touch the globe. But before it did, God was forming a family. And they met together daily with gladness in their heart, simplicity, signs and wonders, the fear of the Lord. As the fire falls, we go deep with one another. We go deeper in love. We go deeper in covenant, relationship, family. We owe the world an unleashing of that fire, an unleashing of that river. We owe the world an encounter with his love, his power, grace, and in an uncompromised gospel. And we owe the world unity of the Holy Spirit. We owe the world what it looks like to love. Jesus said they'll know you by this. But first, before the Great Commission, there's a great condition in that the fire of God must fall. And in Leviticus, God commands his people, the Israelites, he says the fire on the altar must never go out. <clears throat> All right. So, if you will stand up. Are you guys okay? You guys get something out of that? All right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, the fire on the altar must never go out. Leviticus in Leviticus 6. This is God's command. It doesn't matter I, the Lord basically Israel was moving, they were nomadic, following the cloud, following the pillar. But God said, the fire must never go out. I don't care what else you have to miss because of this. The fire is the most important thing. The fire must be kept continually burning. And that's the call this morning. That's the condition, that's our commission, is that we, you, every single one of you, you need fresh fire and that fire falls on sacrifice. And in Romans 12, it says that we are that living sacrifice. And so that's what we give ourselves to. And in that place, we begin to build. We begin to fellowship. We begin to enjoy. We begin to let go of that which doesn't matter. We simplify our life. And we step in deeper. And we say, Lord, we're going to be a people that bear the fruits of the supernatural, beginning with love beginning with grace toward one another, beginning with forgiveness, beginning with the ministry of reconciliation. We're going to meet and we're going to give ourselves to this one thing in fervency of prayer. They were obedient to the word of the Lord. Some of you are waiting on a word from God, a prophetic word. 
but you need to obey the last word that he gave, and that was go. Go. Paul lived under a green light. He, was, he went and he, he, he uh, saw who became Paul. He carried the gospel. He carried the gospel forth and he lived under a green light until the Spirit forbade him not to go. So go until he says stop going because he's already released the commission to go and he'll lead you because oftentimes outpouring falls upon us as we're obedient to the last thing that he says. It falls upon us as we begin to step out of the boat in obedience. You're waiting, but he's already spoken. He's already spoken through his word. Go, therefore, into all the nations. And it's Paul in the Macedonian call. He tries to go into Asia, and this Jesus, the Spirit forbids him. And then he sees a Macedonian man, and he says, come to my nation. And Paul receives a call. This is the fire of God coming upon us. It makes us the clay in the potter's hand. It's Paul in his trip to the third heaven, but it's also Paul in prison. And we get more out of Paul in prison from his letters. We get more out of Paul in prison than his trip to the third heaven. But in order to have the Apostle Paul, you need both. We've underestimated the power of suffering. We've underestimated the power of pain and God's ability to work it in our lives. The apostolic call, I will show you. He came to Paul in Acts 9. I will show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. That fire that comes upon you is not just for goosebumps and giggles. It's to prepare you to give your life to Jesus. Because we see that Jesus promised them, you're going to be sent out like sheep among wolves. That's why you need the fire of God upon your life. It's not just for you. It's so that you'll stand when they bring you up to councils. They bring you up to the synagogue. He says you'll stand in that place because you have a testimony and it's been made real in your heart. Because what I'm saying is not just for us to feel something good in our heart. It's to give our lives and lay it down and say, Lord, touch me with fire because I want to stand till the death, loving not my life even unto the death. And that's why we need God release fresh fire. Lord, we're, we're your clay. You are the potter. Make us, like Jeremiah said, what is this that you're doing with the clay? And the Lord says, can I not do with the clay that which, I, that which pleases me? Lord, we give ourselves to you. We say, fire of God, come. We give ourselves to the gospel. The spreading of the gospel across every nation, tribe, and tongue. Well, we pray for this. And we give ourselves to the fervency of prayer with fasting. And the three foundations that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount was to give, to pray, and to fast. And so I'm inviting you to come and to step over that line and to say, Lord, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll be the sacrifice. Come and burn me again. Because the fire in this place, and I declare this over this community, the fire in this place must never go out. So, Lord, raise up, an, raise up apostles out of this house. Lord, raise up prophets out of this house. I pray that you would raise up people from this place that would go into the nations, and as they enter cities, the cities would tremble and say, are not these the ones that turned the world upside down? I don't know about you, but no child dreams of being insignificant. You were made for significance but there's no greater significance than to live for the age to come, to live for eternity. So, Lord, we give ourselves for the eternal 
because what we do in this life echoes in eternity. That's a gladiator quote. Fire of God, come. Holy Spirit, come. Moses saw something in the wilderness. He saw a bush. You can imagine in the wilderness the sun catching bushes on fire and consuming them. But he saw one day a bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And in Acts 2, the fire falls, and you and I, we become that bush. It was a sign, and it was a wonder. But we become a burning people, burning with the fire of God, yet not consumed because we're clothed in incorruptible blood. We've been washed We've been washed by the blood of Jesus and now it's time for the fire to consume us so that we can become the burning bush that calls a nation, that calls Moses is out, that calls a nation to deliverance. Lord, burn us. I ask that you would release seraphim, he who makes his angels' spirits a wind, his servants a flame of fire. I ask that angels would minister to those that inherit salvation in this place. Or we're praying for a sign and a wonder in this house to be raised up, in this people to be raised up. And we say, God, we're going to contest spiritual powers that you're releasing divine weapons for the pulling down of spiritual strongholds. We say, God, do it in Macon. We need power. We need power, Father, to do that which you've called us to do. Help us to see the assignment and to recognize we need more. We're desperate for a, a touch. And I just want to end with this. If we'll give him those things, if we'll give him obedience... We'll give him prayer, fasting, crying out, knocking, seeking, asking. If we'll give him our waiting, our tearing, and if we'll give him unity, he will come like he came. He will come like he promised. Because in these last days, he's revealing himself through his son. In these last days, he is pouring His Spirit out on all flesh. So God, if You're pouring out Your Spirit on all flesh, would You pour it out on me? And in that, the spirit of prophecy would be loosed. Young men to, to prophesy and old men to dream again. Old men need to dream again. Some of you 50 plus, you need to dream again. And some of you that are young, you need to envision for your future. So, Lord, I pray right now the spirit of prophecy to come upon your people to see where to go and wings on how to get there. Raise up your people, Jesus.